I'm going to pick all white keys, except I'm going to make F sharp and B's flat. What's that sound like? Oh, it sounds like this. And it tells you what the next thing to do is. So it's guiding you. Yeah, it's guiding you. You you throw out an arbitrary idea and then you hit it with craftsmanship, which is synonymous, I guess, in a weird way with it's guiding you. This is Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, with Whitney Ann Jenkins. Hi, hello. Welcome to the very first episode of Unconditioning, Discovering the Voice Within, where I bring on guests and we talk about the inner authentic voice and how they've followed it throughout their lives, the challenges and the rewards that have come from that, and also the discoveries that they're still making. My very first guests that I have on the show are Andy Hasenflug and Robin Hasenflug, who are two incredible musicians who harmonize as a couple and who also happen to be my very good friends. And I wanted to bring them on the show because they're two of the most grounded individuals that I know with knowing themselves. And that is translated through their artistry as musicians. And I thought that they would have a lot of wisdom to share on this subject as we dive deep into this conversation. So before we get started, I would like to share a little bit of information about Andy and Robin. So Andy Hasenflug is a composer and a percussionist. He has an extensive list of credits in theater, dance, jazz, rock, classical, and commercial venues. He includes the U.S. Air Force Band, Denver Contemporary Dance Company, the Equity Library Theater, Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. He's written jingles for Kroger food stores and Houlihan's restaurants. He's written a ton of compositions for commissions for various companies such as Dance Alloy and Labco. He's worked as an accompanist for dance at the American Dance Festival, where he serves as the music director. He's also worked for the Dayton Contemporary Dance Company, the University of Cincinnati, Helen Duren Co., Kim Robarts Dance, the University of Colorado, SUNY Purchase, and also Columbia College Chicago, which is where I went. And funny story, Andy worked there when I was attending there, and we probably passed each other hundreds of times before meeting years later. And he currently serves as the music director for the dance department at Slippery Rock University. And somehow I actually convinced Andy to play on stage with my band a couple times. So quite a resume there. And then we have the lovely Robin Hasenflug, who is a cellist and she performs as a soloist, a chamber musician, and an orchestral player throughout the US, Canada, and Europe. She was named an Emerging Artist of 2018 by Symphony Magazine. As a member of the Holzer Music Festival, she performed in a concert tour of Italy. And she also concertized in Germany in the same region where she played with the Flats Theatre Opera Orchestra. And in the U.S., Robin's all over the place. She serves an assistant to the principal of the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra in Madison. She continues her post as principal cellist of the Butler County Symphony Orchestra, as well as performing with the Erie Philharmonic and Wheeling Symphony. Robin performs regularly with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. She's played concerts with Evanescence, Disturbed, Josh Groban, and Michael Bublé. She's featured on my first album, and she is currently teaching privately in her studio and serves as a cello professor at Westminster College. And this isn't even all of their resumes. It's very extensive. But just to give you an idea, um, these are two very impressive individuals. And every now and then, Robin and Andy combine their efforts and fuse their music into the duo Hasenflug. So I'm really excited to introduce them to you in this conversation. It's very candid and honest and fun and full of energy. 
So without further ado, I present to you Robin and Andy Hasenflug. No, I'm excited. I love answering questions. I have I have a little um, guideline okay. that oh. we can veer off of or okay. not follow at all. That Perfect. Like, I'm I so love that. that. Yeah. Wow. Wait, magic. You guys have been like my COVID constants. Wow. I yeah, I agree. I think you're one of our constants as well. I think that should be a big low team. Yeah. When, um, well, I mean, it's hard COVID, because... COVID constants. I don't know. Like, we love a lot of the families in the neighborhood, but everybody's constant like... Constant COVID. I'm sorry. Okay, forget it. <laughs> I'm not going to talk anymore. I know. I'm sorry I did that. I, I admit it. I apologize. <laughs> okay, now I can listen. <laughs> No, I don't care. I don't care. I don't even know what I'm talking about. And I didn't even like what I was saying anyway, so I'm glad you interrupted. No, it's just that everybody has to... No, I I I mean... Neighbors, (laughs) neighbors, I love you. But we all have to distance a little, right? Yeah. And, you know, they have have a bunch of kids and everybody's worried about killing people with their children. Oh, yeah. As carriers, you know. I get it. We kill people with our children. So what's the first thing on your ning-nang? Yeah, let's hear one of your first things. I want to hear about little Andy and little Robin. You mean when we were children? When we were children... And I want to talk about when you first realized that you have individual thoughts within yourself and not just something that people. Whoa. Interesting. I really have to think about that. That's tough because I don't have a lot of memory back then. I do remember when I would get upset. I mean, this is probably pre being able to write. So whatever that is, you know, like four, I guess that I would sit in a corner and go, I'm me, I'm me. Perfect. That's, That's just like the core of your personality. <laughs> Sitting in a corner going, I'm me. I'm me. So then there you go. Short answer. That's really great. <laughs> but what did what did that mean though to you? What did I can't I'm, tell you that. I, I mean I I mean I don't think it meant like I realize I'm sentient, but it did mean I am me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I don't have to get along with your other shit because I'm just me, you know. I don't have to be this is, and you this or stayed. do your thing or believe yes, your beliefs. Totally. Which is why I wanted to have you on this podcast, really, because I feel like you, out of so many people that I know, are able to carry that. With oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. He ta- him, not me, but him. <laughs> well, maybe this true. I don't know. I don't, anyway, don't you know, too, right? Rob. So what yeah. are you talking about? Well, I've got my own version of You're a rock it, star. And you carry that everywhere. Yeah, you you got your own yeah. fierceness. So you're you, huh? You're what YouTube. about you? What about little Robin? As far as when I was having my, I was just actually while you were asking that question, I was trying to think, and I remember being in art class when I was in fourth grade, making it. We were making some sort of like T-shirts, and I had this idea about um, sneaking out at night, which was something I it wasn't even a concept of actually doing at nine, but I thought that like the idea of freedom was so exciting so i made this t-shirt about what would happen if she snuck out at night and nobody knew where she was it was super mysterious and i just had this narrative and nobody understood it (laughs) because it was like after the fact and all these questions and like the narrative was there in the picture i'm like i didn't understand why no one understood it but it was all actually in my head the the narrative that's him oh no really well, that he does. That's that. him. Meaning that's our, our son, son does exactly that. That's not bad. Well, no, you I turned know. Out but, okay, but like me and one other girl, like I explained it to one other girl in my art class, and we just were like, "This is amazing." <laughs> Nobody nice. else got it. Nice. <laughs> so I think that's it. Because I was like, I had this real like elaborate concept of 
of freedom. And, and I wanted to have this like little girl sneak out and do her own thing. And I didn't even know that that was a thing. Like, you know, in high school, people snuck out all the time, but I was like, what if she actually went off on her own? <laughs> when you were younger, yeah. I used to have thoughts about that. I had a completely other different family and oh, I would wow. have like conversations with them at the end of the day oh, and being so like, cute. Oh, this family is so crazy. <laughs> like, look at all the crazy things that they do and won't let you do. Yes. Like, why don't they have a pool? <laughs> Nice. Right. It was sort of like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. So it's just some fantasy world that I had these ideas of. But then little did I know I could not wait to escape myself. My, you know, like literally I couldn't wait to get into the world as I got older. Were you encouraged to get into the world? Like, did you? Come yeah, from- they're so cute. My parents are so cute. Like they encouraged me, but also at the same time, they want me to be home all the time. So it's Cause you know, I guess that's a parent thing. Like they want you to be so successful, but then they guilt you out cause you're never home <laughs> once you're successful. <laughs> so yes, I, I was, I was encouraged at least, um, in the musical department. Definitely. Were you encouraged to explore your IME? Oh, I think so. Yeah. 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 I don't. Yeah, absolutely. I don't even ever recall a conversation like, well, you can go into music, but it's going to be really hard. I don't even think that ever happened. Yeah, same here. Like my dad was like, like they didn't try to get, get, this is so backwards world, but my parents didn't think about me having a plan B or a safety net. They just really were, they knew what I wanted and they were encouraging that. At what point did you know that music is what you were going to do? You go. Always. But when I was a little kid, I don't know if I thought of things that way. I mean, I wrote songs, you know, and there were three notes or whatever. But um, so, no, I probably thought, you know, like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor or whatever. But I mean, as soon as like really actually you're going to do something was the thought 12 years old, maybe. <laughs> Is your fun OK? Can I tell you a funny story when you're oh, done yeah. about kicking a mic? Yeah. OK, go. Mine's done. So, you know, D. Snyder <laughs> from Twisted Sister. So maybe when he, I was playing backups for him like two years ago he was doing like a ballad and I hit the mic with like my bow and it was like pop, like <laughs> right in the middle of it. Maybe that happened. Okay. Anyhow, go on. Like I just did that right now with this mic. Yeah. With my foot. Oops. No, that's it. But so that yeah, as it. far as back as I know, but maybe 12 yeah, so, was the so, first so, formal yeah. thought about a future and what am I going to do? So what about you, Robin? 15. 15. Yeah. It was like, um, one of those state orchestras. And this story, oh my God, I find this story so cheesy now, but it was the Pines of Rome, which is like a really big bombastic orchestral And And there's this solo where it's, okay, I love Raspighi, but this is a little cheesy. He has a recording of a bird scored into the part. So there's this clarinet solo and it gets really quiet. And then you're supposed to play a recording of birds chirping. Like nobody did that. And I'm like, all these tears like I couldn't my whole being was like this is so beautiful (laughs) and I was like wait a minute do people get paid for this because I always want to do this forever ever always now because I thought wow if I can you know use my craft and and have this incredibly fulfilling soul experience for a living I mean I put the word living in quotes when I say that but we're alive we're alive you are alive yeah. No, I, I get that. 
like the uh, music is very powerful and being able to really inspire us or affect our emotions yeah. and we all experience it in a different way mm-hmm. like come from it with a different emotion yeah. maybe, which is very and there is an it when you say come mm-hmm. to it it's it's there it's a thing it's addictive that it this the it's like the void being in this this moment is addictive and that's why I think people, well, I think that's why we put our blood, sweat and tears into it to achieve that. Like, it's like you're always reaching for that when every when all the planets and stars align in a performance or even sometimes even it's just when you're practicing by yourself. You have this moment and it's just so soul filling. It doesn't matter if anyone heard it or not. It's really it's it's addictive. Yeah, I find that to be an entirely separate thing from performance, performance, meaning audience relevance as um music exists on another plane from audience relevance and audience relevance is something you should try to tie into it to share it and to have a job i think you and i have a different perspective on that though because i feel like and i think when you say audience relevance my word for that is entertainment yeah Mm -hmm. and like i love making people happy so much and i love so much that like you can tell and i know you can too whitney as an actress when your audience is riveted by your performance and you're changing their hearts for a little while there's nothing like it to me like when and that's my way of helping the world because i don't really i don't have enough money to give to poor people like i just don't and i would love to but i figure if i can help people's souls a little bit with my art like that's important to me it's a little it's definitely separate from what we were just talking about but that's a really it's a really like it's a big draw for me to be a performer is that component yeah and andy so it's not so much about performance for you so oh i i know i mean i like that and i think it's important and honestly i i think it's important more than i like it like um yeah, you know, I mean, if somebody I if somebody hires me to write music for a certain kind of thing or, or if I'm playing in a bar, which I love doing and that has nothing to do with artistic integrity or intellectual stimulation at all. And I love doing that and it makes people happy and I definitely yeah. want to play what they want to hear. Um, but that's all. So I don't I mean, there's certainly a level of that and it, it has. That's almost like a, an ethic of. Professionalism rather than and there are times on that kind of gig like bar gigs where you're just playing you know like sweet home alabama and everybody's like yeah you know and it doesn't matter how stupid the music is or or, sorry um leonard skinner um but yeah and and so so the there's a magic to it that transcends other kinds of critical analysis um but for overall no i i definitely find music to be its own reward mm-hmm. and so what would be your why and what, what drives you to be a musician yeah i mean my answer's stupid that's what i am that's that's i, I can't imagine not that's being stupid. that i don't think it's stupid. Stupid answer. that's pretty powerful it is because it's yeah. pretty much what you said in the in the corner of your room at four years old yes yeah 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 well said, Whitney. Totally. Oh no, I'm the same. I'm not capable of growth. <laughs> no, you're always going to be you. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about how you chose to pursue this in an academic way? 
Oh, sure. Do you want to go first? No. Is it a twosome question? Okay. Yeah. So can I choose? Okay. I didn't. That's. uh, My career is the doors that were open. So I went to school, like I think uh, tons of people who go to an arts college. You go there thinking that you like this or, uh, you know, that you want to be this or that. And they're like, no, that's not what's important. That's not even what's good. What we say is important is what's important based on all these principles that you're now going to learn and be tested on. Um, And it's hard to walk away from that without buying into it. So I I definitely bought into the value of of intellectualizing the art form through college and grad school. But being, being in that field myself is just because I got gigs working for colleges. So I... I went to an undergrad where they had an okay music school and a great dance school at the time. That's SUNY Purchase. A lot of the big people and big companies at that time were coming out of and big dance companies. I mean, were coming out of SUNY Purchase, and the music department was fine. But we always collaborated, so the music students got to play a lot of dance classes, which is amazing because they were really heavy accompanists there, also from New York City. And then we'd play half the classes. I don't know whose arrangement that was. You know, at the time, I didn't even think about it because the kids in the music department compared to what they could have as the you know seasoned professional a-list accompanists that would also come in the kids in the music department were like pathetic like we shouldn't have gotten paid you know we should have like been fired um but anyway so i played at a i went to school at a good dance school i went to school for music at a good dance school and um so then i had that in my wheelhouse and then anytime i would move to new town that'd be the very first gigs you get because it's easy you just call every every dance school there is and just be like i can do this you know and and then you'll get one or two classes because you're the new person in town so they'll give you something um so then gradually that became more and more of my work as a you know purely as that's what people are giving me as gigs so then i applied it and got finally a full-time job in a university so then i also wanted to you know teach a class and and um be part of the team in other ways but that's why i'm in academia i am an intellectual but i'm not an academic the longer i'm in academia the more obvious to me that becomes the whole like committees and um politically correct research and and stuff and and the way you see topics become like the hot button topic and oh everybody has to have a course in this now and mm-hmm. and you know they have to do like five hour curriculum committee meetings rather than just being like, Hey, this is a good idea. Let's do it. You know, they, they can't do anything that way. Um, so academia involves a lot of stuff that, I, I mean, I'm certainly not against people who are into doing research and all that kind of thing. It's a great thing, but it's not what I am. I, I'm, I'm really just an artist and, and a, an artist that values both the animal and the intellectual side, like the best art has both to me. And so I can hang with the academic people, but I, I'm not one of them. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I can, right? I can, it, yeah, I can relate to that also. Yeah, because I went to art school, so I understand all of the the ebbs and flows. And mm-hmm. oh, but how can you really grade someone on their? Art? Oh, I, dude, we have rubrics for for dance pieces, and there are years where in the adjudication context where I put in the score and then I go backwards through the rubric just to justify my numbers. Yeah. That's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And then it's like, is someone really able to allow their flow to be as flowing as possible with the, all of those oh, restrictions? Right. Right. And- no. And they really care. They care about getting a high score on that because they want to be on a particular concert. 
What about you, Robin? How did you find, um, even attending school mm-hmm. for music, how did you find It's really path? different. Andy and I have very different industries. Because I was just thinking about the rubric, because I just did a rubric for my students at Westminster, their juries. And you really do have a checklist of things with string playing that they need to really, I mean, woodshed is the word. Pitch, rhythm, harmony. Um, it's It's a... Putting the ingredients together is very, very technical. But the hard thing that I'm finding, and I don't know if I'm talking, and I'm not talking about academia, I'm just talking about the clinical approach to art versus the spiritual, I guess. Um, The hard thing to bridge is going from super, like building your technique as a classical string player to creating the canvas that the composer intended it to be you know because you've got this end result and it's so emotional and so but you have to go through school to learn rhythm and unless you know like you have this everyone has like a natural ability at something and the skill sets are so different but everybody has to know rhythm rhythm is there's no there's no middle ground rhythm dynamics tempo blah 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 all those all those ingredients to make this recipe of this beautiful canvas and this beautiful work of art that Brahms made, you have to have those abilities. You have to, and they have to be very, very good. Okay. So I'm going to quote a review of yours because I think this speaks to what you're talking about right now. It says her control of the cello allowed her instrument to sing as if it were a human voice. Yeah. So can you talk about what it's like to balance like the technique versus allowing things to right. flow and express. I know. I know. I'm just now starting to be able to articulate that particular component. I don't know of being a musician because you have to, you have to do all the work at home. And I, my analogy to my students lately has been like, if you imagine somebody getting ready for a date and they have like a, a mask and like cucumbers on their eyes and curlers in their hair and a, a robe and they look crazy but that's all the preparation work you don't want to hear people hear you practice practicing sounds bad but you have to do all that stuff but somewhere between all the preparation all the scales the etudes the practicing your shifts somewhere between that and the stage is where you need to wash your face of the mask and and start to put on the lipstick and start to bridge the gap between the technical and the spiritual and and some people have the natural ability to play musically without having to evolve away from all the woodshedding of of learning a piece of music to the stage but i think so many so many music students including myself You have to start to evolve away from all the work you did and start to tap into the composer's intentions now that you have the the tools to do that. And you have to learn how to start, stop micromanaging and, 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 and quiet the chatter in your head to let the phrasing flow and to let the music flow. And, and there is a, for me and and for my students as well. I mean, there are brilliant musicians out there who were born with this. And then there's those of us who have to learn the steps between technique and artistry 
and just pure, but you can't have the artistry without the technique. Right. So, so there's a gap. There's a, then that's what I'm trying to train my students right now. I said, like, I'll say like next week, I just want you to play this for me, no matter what happens without stopping. I don't care if you make a mistake. I want you to stop micromanaging in your mind and just start listening to yourself. And, and that's where the vocalness, like cello is a very vocal instrument. I think, I think it's a very, and that, review really warms my heart because I really feel like the cello is probably the closest thing to the human voice, you know, one of the closest instruments. But like if, when you are, when you're in that space where you're not thinking anymore, you're just hearing and being in the music, that's the goal. And it's hard to teach that. And I think it's hard for me to do it myself sometimes, but I think for me, it's like when I teach it, it's just a matter of letting the the student relax into the music and hearing it and and trusting that you know how to play it so you don't have to constantly correct yourself technically <laughs> it's a hard th- take a deep breath music is hard <laughs> because you, you a lot of your work is interpreting something that someone else has composed that's one of the that's on the list and a lot of what andy does is actually composing yourself so where does that inspiration come from i um i believe pretty strongly that creativity doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and that the person who's quote-unquote creative is the person who's willing to show what they made to other people And the person who's not quote unquote creative is the person that puts the word just in front of what they made. So in music that might be like, well, that's just a D major scale or that's just a one, four, five chord progression, or that's, you know, just me rhyming true love with dream and of like, and then there's the person that's like, listen to this, you know, and it's not any better or more complex or whatever. Um, and I think that's true across the board in, in any art and maybe just in anything um, that, you know, that I'm not necessarily I believe in talent and stuff like that. I'm just saying like creativity itself. I don't know how that much that actually exists. Um, this is funny because I think you're one of the most creative people I've ever met, if not like the top. Thanks. Most yeah. creative Gosh. person I've ever met. Thanks. So maybe our definition of creativity is skewed <laughs> through my blind perception of myself. Maybe you're uh, just talented. Yeah, right. <laughs> well said. Okay. So that being said, because there's a reason why I said that is that inspiration comes from an arbitrary ideas for the most part. Like if somebody asks you to make a certain thing, you know. And like you said, they're, I don't know, I'm making a piece about the beach. Can you write music for that? So, you know, what am I going to start with? Just pick any arbitrary things. OK, I'll start with ocean sounds. I'll start with, you know, what do you like about the beach? Oh, playing. I'll start with people playing volleyball sounds. And how would that sound in music or, or whatever? Or you might be making some, you know, postmodern decision. You're like, well, then I'm going to make concrete industrial sounds because it makes me long for the beach. You know, so like any any arbitrary decision you make is fine. Then you just vomit some stuff out based on those parameters. And then the the inspiration in quotes starts, which is then you chisel. Then you are. Okay, so you're saying that that's not creative because somebody dictated what you're. No, I'm saying it's not inspired. Okay, so. 
so so that's someone giving you an assignment basically right no but i think that's anything, that's anything. right you can just start with i'm just going to do something i want well i'm going to pick all white keys except i'm going to make f sharp and b's flat what's that sound like oh it sounds like this and it tells you what the next thing to do is so it's guiding you Oh, yeah, it's guiding yeah, yeah. you. You throw out an arbitrary idea right. and then you hit it with craftsmanship, which is synonymous, I guess, in a weird way with it's guiding you. Oh, so so what is it? Uh, quality. Or the end. And emotional response. Emotional response. I like that. So your careers have taken you all over the world. Yay. Almost. Right. A yeah. lot of the world. A lot of the world. There's still some things we haven't seen. Lots of things. Okay. P.S. I don't mean to. But you lived in Germany, yes. You That was you nice. Experienced yeah, that was great. Lots of different yeah. places. Yes. And so how did that inform your voice as musicians? Or did it affect that at all? Did it change your voice inside of you? I'm sure it did. Well, I mean, honestly, I think everything does. But... For classical musicians, it's like a pilgrimage. Like you have to go over to Vienna and Salzburg and and just visit, you know, the the graves and the homes of your. Comp- I, I really feel like it's it's just such a nice way. I mean, for the working backwards, the fact that we're still playing these people's music and and it's so revered and it's so um, ubiquitous is is like it's a it's a gift and then to be able to go to where they where they were inspired i think that's what i'm trying to say it's like to go to their homelands and see where they took inspiration mozart and bach and and just to go to the thomas kirche where bach worked you're like what you know i'm and 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 just to have but then also to experience the way europeans and their ensembles are um I mean, to, I actually played in an opera company over there and I got to know what, how their economy and how their government and their society supported the arts. And that was just so exciting to see because here we're supported, but it, it's not a part of the of your taxes. I mean, that's how that's how um, systemic the arts are in Europe. So it was nice to have that um, exposure to see a different way of approaching or, or, or a different way a society values its culture. I think it was very, um, and, and I was, when we were there, you know, being a cello player, because I'm not going to say how many years ago it was, but being a cello player over here was kind of odd. Like, so I'd walk in to a restaurant with my cello and like the whole restaurant would like, but then in Europe, you'd see other cellists and it almost like we had like our own little like handshake. You're like, hey, yo, you know, <laughs> another cello player, you know, they were, we're everywhere. And this was like, yeah, this must have been what, 2000. But that was when that now cellos are everywhere in our states. But like when I was growing up, it was so weird to walk around with your cellos. Like, what is that thing? Like, which is dumb. I don't know why that was a thing. But but in Europe, it's just it's just more infused into the culture. There. And I loved to be in that. What about you, Andrew? Yeah. So what exactly is the question? Yeah, I'm sorry. I <laughs> no, no. I mean, I just want to clarify. It's, it's like living in other places. Did you feel that oh, yeah. your, um, your voice, your, your, what was guiding you to chisel away at those creations oh. that you're making? Do you feel that it, that changed? Yeah, certainly it changed. I mean, just your, your ideas of, you know, right and wrong, politics changes, but then also the, the art you, um, Osmos isn't a word, but whatever the word for osmosis is, that's 
osmos um, absorb. That's the word. The art you absorb is going to change you too. So yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know, like things that you would have thought, or I would have, I, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but um, as almost caricatures, I think we, we think about things from other places in the world in almost this Hollywoodified perception of what that thing is, you know, like Middle Eastern music is like, or something like that. And, and then if you would go there, you would hear what it really is and it would infiltrate you and it would stop seeming like something that all sounds the same. So that happened. Um, in Europe, to a degree, in Europe, uh, I think I learned more just about life, but other, you know, other governments and yeah, just ways nice. of, of approach looking at life and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, being less stressed out and different kinds of just ways that people would go through things. And it's different and it's not any better or worse. Um, but, you know, when you grow up, even though this is a huge country that's kind of an empire and has a lot of different things, you're still a bit myopic in terms of what you think is like good, bad, right and wrong, how quote unquote, everybody lives, stuff like that. Uh, politics, certainly. So, so that was influential being over there in Europe. I remember um, like seeing Boxgrave or um, seeing uh, Sibelius's house, things like that. It were moving. I don't know if they were changing my artistic voice, but getting to go to Asia definitely was more changing my artistic voice because I mean, just, you know, this music that up until I was whatever, 40 years old, I, I just kind of heard as being so different that I didn't understand it at all. And like all Chinese music would sound the same, you know, and, and then getting to go there and hear different things and and taking a voice that, you know, I mean, sounds like nya, 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 like taking that seriously as opposed to being like, wow, it's that silly nasal voice. Um, and, and yeah, just different stuff, being able to hear the difference between like Chinese and Japanese music and why you get that sort of angular darkness to the Japanese sound and then how, how that relates to pitches and stuff. Um, so, yeah, that definitely I mean, I find in my work, I'm, I'm copying a lot of that. So, yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, one other thing that I felt maybe it was just me getting older but something that I was able to embrace more the more I traveled and the more I saw the world is art that is not goal oriented. Like we tend to really value this art that like has a climax at like two thirds of the way through or whatever. It's really directional. And that just sort of comes from the Western aesthetic and traveling allowed me to embrace a little bit more things that might not have that like A, B, A, C, climax, A, B, fade out kind of of um, thing like not that i ever saw this but like i think it's the thailand shadow puppetry that goes on for like six hours or whatever but but a lot of art forms um that are like sort of uh long based or drone based or even um like just have improvisatory structures where it might be intense for a bit but then it's not and then it might be and then it's not and it's not about like did you have a beginning and a middle and an end with the journey that is has the kind of trajectory i think that uh, I learned a lot about that from traveling too. Sounds more like real life yeah, rather yeah. than right. Hollywood blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So, out of all of the places that you've been, where did Andy feel like he was most the I am me in the mm -hmm. corner of his bedroom? <sighs> I, don't know. I don't know if there's an answer for that. Um, I mean, when you go somewhere, <laughs> you, go, you know, when you go somewhere, when you get to go somewhere new, 
every place feels like that because it doesn't have anything bad about it yet. You know what I mean? You're like, these people really get it right. Oh my God. I've never, this is so yeah, amazing over totally. here, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, and then if you hang out anywhere, not even that long, but long enough, like you realize there's a bunch of jerks there too, you know? Right. Yeah. So, so no, I don't know. I mean, I think it's here because actually in the States, something I'm sure they do this everywhere, but it is a melting pot. And like that, my art is definitely a melting pot. Uh, and um, even to the point where there are very things I can do in an authentic way. Well, almost everything of what I do is some kind of um, bastardization of something else. And I think that's a very American thing. Yeah. What about you, Robin? Um, yeah, I was just thinking about that. I, I think we lived in Germany, but I have Italian roots. And when I was in Italy and I've been there a couple of times and I love it. I love it so much. And I do find personalities and cultures, the culture there to resonate with me. Um, if I were to choose anywhere to live, I would live in France just because I adore Paris. Um, but like Andy said, I think here is just... It's just where I feel most comfortable and that I can contribute. I don't know. It's hard to say. But I think, you know, my this is where my culture is now. Right. Like when I went to Italy and I had a dinner, you know, I've heard this story a million times, sorry, with friends at a farm. And the father's name is Gasparino. And I didn't speak any Italian. I, I tried to learn since because I felt stupid. But it was like we didn't need to speak the same language. I totally understood their humor. I knew exactly what they were talking about. And I was like, oh, my God, this is why my dad is the way he is. Like my dad reminded me or this gentleman Gasparino reminded me of my dad. And I just had the best night, even though I didn't know what the hell they were saying like the whole time. But we understood each other perfectly well because I got the culture. Like I was right, right. there in it. So it's something like inside of you also uh -huh. a, a voice that you recognize. Oh my goodness. So, you so might not much. be able to like verbally right. exchange. It's something. Yeah, it was so crazy. It was crazy. So I feel really comfortable in Italy, but I mean, just, I'm just American, you know, at the end of the day, I can, <laughs> even though I have European roots and, and actually we, we would have loved to stay in Europe. It just wasn't, possible at the time i i love being in europe and i love i love france and i think if i were to choose a place to live i'd live in france um even though i had that sort of connection with italy i just feel like there's something about the french culture i think it's my mother's fault because my mom's like a total francophile and she taught us french and she made us take french and we weren't allowed to take spanish and you know <laughs> that was like her thing so maybe this is her fault but um but culturally speaking, yeah, I feel like I do more good here. And I, I feel like because of my experiences and my, um, you know, the infusion of all the different cultures I've, I've lived in, I like to share that here. Mm -hmm. And it seems like ever since I, I've even met you, you're branching out of your comfort zone yes. because you're doing more so experimental fun. stuff rather than just sticking with your classical roots. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Did your, what drove you? Well, I mean, ugh, I listened to a lot of different music growing up. I definitely listened to my share of classical. My father was the big, um, like old school jazz aficionado as well as classical music. And so that was always on in the house or in my dad's big giant Cadillac. Like he'd have 
he'd be smoking a cigarette listening to like <laughs> Artie Shaw or like Woody Herman. Like he always had the big names on. He just loved jazz. And so I, I kind of grew up, I just grew up listening to it. Um, and then I listened, you know, my favorite bands were like Rush and Yes and The Police. And I did, a, I just loved music and I loved whatever really moved my spirit. So it could have been Prokofiev. Because I, like, I, I listened to Prokofiev very young, <laughs> which is weird, but um, and it's just stuff that gets infused in your developmental years into your into your DNA. So I listened to tons of different things and and I know how to play it. And it also moves me to play it. So, you know, I, I started doing the Trans-Siberian concerts in 2013 and it like unleashed something that I had it was dormant because I was working so hard to be a classical musician all these years that I, I had, I hadn't tapped into the fact that I know this music, I understand it and I love it and it's super fun. And it really isn't that different from the energy I put into playing Shostakovich. <laughs> so I started doing more of that and then other doors opened up and I didn't say no anymore. I didn't say, I just started saying yes to everything. And um, I ended up on the stage with a lot of really cool names, which could be considered just gigs, but I considered them effing amazing. And I got to play some great stuff with great player musicians and artists. And, and I just got addicted to it. I just like, it like opened, like something was unleashed. It's all Trans-Siberian's fault. They unleashed the beast. <laughs> Yes. You also play a lot of weddings. Tons. And so how do you make that oh my God. Um, be okay <laughs> for you after you're playing the same oh, thing? Oh, that's such a great so I love times. this question because I that was that's a journey in and of itself. Because weddings are super lucrative. They're not hard to do. Um but you are expected to be, you know, great. You have to be you have, it's a big day, you know. So I played weddings for a couple decades now, and I just never thought I'd still be doing them. But the thing is, I had a res, uh, I call it like a, a renaissance in my playing. Cause at first when you're a young musician and you know, you're going to win the New York Philharmonic, <laughs> you're just like practicing and you're too busy, but you have to make money. So you play these weddings and they're stupid and you're bored. And, and then like, I guess maybe it was in Europe when I studied with Hans, Hans Christian Schweiker. He's just like this amazing man and a beautiful soul. And he just re-enlivened the fact that it doesn't matter what you're playing for. You're playing music. You're doing your art. So you could put me in any situation right now and I will be having the time of my life. So that was a big turning point because I, I, I see young musicians and I hire young musicians and I see a couple different kinds who are um, just in it, the wedding gig to get the money and go home. And then I see people who are actually musicians. Because once you're once you achieve being a real musician, it doesn't matter what gig you're on, you're playing. You're, you're a musician, period. You're not just like going through the motions or phoning it in. So I turned that corner when I was in Germany, for sure. And I just, just, if you have something you want me to play, I'm all in and I will play music for you. The end. <laughs> it's, it's like nothing. There's no middle ground. <laughs> yeah. So Andy, mm -hmm. can you talk 
a little bit more about your dance collaboration. Sure. And because you're, do you, when you play for dancers, mm -hmm. are you given something specific to play usually? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, or is it more improvisational? Okay, so, um, oh no, it's, it's, for me, it's entirely improvisational. I know, you know, I mean, it depends what discipline of dance you're talking about. So if you're in a, if you're in a traditional West African class, for instance, which I'm not knowledgeable about, but then you're playing a specific style of music that has three different specific djembe parts, three different specific junjun parts. And every, and they're the same, no matter when, when or where that is. Um, not to make it sound too inflexible again, that's not my expertise, but in that case, my point is you're playing a traditional thing. If you're in a ballet class at this time in history, it depends if it's a traditional ballet class or if it's a contemporary ballet class, what you're going to play. So I don't know how to play a traditional ballet class. So I play a contemporary ballet class, which means I improvise it. Okay. Um, so within that, have you noticed, like, as you're improvising and going along with what you're doing, yeah. can you notice that it affects the dancers? Yeah. Okay. That's big. Um, so I play uh, a lot of contemporary dance and some ballet, and I'm really a contemporary player, but it's the same answer for the question, which is why I said that. Um, yes. If you, when you first get into it, or if you're doing it part-time or whatever, if it's a side gig, if you're not, haven't sort of bought into it yet, um, you're generally trying to please the teacher and play something that is fun for everybody and it's exciting and fun and that's really all you care about. Um, once you sort of become vested, you, you add things to that. It has to be ped pedagogically valuable for them. You have to be teaching them without speaking. Um, there, there are multiple levels that you're trying to hit as an accompanist um, improvising. So yes, you're given some specific things, but it changes. And the more seasons you get, the more you can read into what they're doing um, and what they need at that given time. Uh, so, you know, you'll know if there's a tempo, if that if they're even counting what the count structure is, what the general vibe of, of the dance is, if there are specific accents, things like that. Um, and then I will choose to what degree I want to reinforce that in sort of a um, music visualization kind of way that that would be a choreographic technique where they're trying to make the dance look like the music sounds. That's music visualization as a choreographer. So whether I'm going for that aspect, like light and fast, because they're doing something light and fast, or whether I'm going to choose to contrast that on some level to make it better art or to teach them something, you know, and it's a balance when you're in class of trying to maintain the energy and make it fun, trying to play some things that are very obvious that they can latch on to easily, trying to play some things that are going to challenge them, but are still always good art. Like I never try to challenge them with something that's bad art to just be like, hey, make this work, you know. Ooh, so there's good and bad art. Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. Absolutely. Wow. Um, it's whatever I say it is, too. It's, it's, it's just art. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so. So, yeah, there, there are all of those things that go into that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, because you're kind of working with a different art form. And so they're using their own voices and you're yeah. using yours. And so it's an interesting thought that you guys would harmonize. Yeah. Yeah. I look at it always as a duet, even if there's 30 of them and one of me. 
sort of. Yeah, no, I know. I, I actually got a chance to do some dance classes with Andy um, at the American Dance Festival in summers. And I'm I'm the opposite, though, because I'm not a dance musician, but I react to what's going on there more than I'm dictating what's going on there. But I know Andy works with the dance instructor and they kind of already plot things out in advance. But when they throw the cellist in, although sometimes we have a funny conversation before we start playing and we like we like decide what style we're going to go in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That. If you're playing with another musician. Yeah. Yeah. You funny. have you have like a 10 second window. But I kind of I infuse myself into what they're already doing instead of trying to create what they're going to react to. But that's because. Sure. And that depends who you're sitting next to. Yeah. You know, too. Like, I mean. Eric Moss and I don't have to talk a lot anymore. Oh, I bet. Okay. You know, you just, oh, God. I'll do something and you do something and oh, whatever God. you do, make it not suck compared to what I do. Great. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's the conversation. Oh God, you guys are brilliant. It's scary. The talent at American Dance Festival is like. I mean, you get to sick. learn people. Like if you play with somebody four or five times, you get to learn like, okay, I can throw them this curveball and yeah. they'll catch it. Yeah. But if I throw them this curveball, they won't. Right. So, right, right. so now our parameters are this. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, and that's a subconscious. That's uh, how they're going to do with it, what I do. Right. You get to know your other your, your fellow musicians and what their limitations are. Hopefully they are doing the same for you. So how do you maintain like speaking of musicians playing together? How do you maintain your like individuality within like a symphony situation? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different story. Like a symphony situation for string players is a team you're on a team it's a teamwork situation in a like in a cello section so while you are all coming from different backgrounds as cellists um if it's a professional situation you've auditioned to be in that section so that means the people who have hired you already have a sense of what the team should be sounding like and so you were chosen not just because you're great but also because you're somebody who would who could be part of that team um, so you have to be a team player in a cello section. It's not so much in a smaller group like, you know, where you're the only cellist or there's only two of you. It's a different story. But in a symphony orchestra, it's um, it's a little bit more of a, you're more of a worker bee. Um, you're more um, ex you're expected more to blend with your section. Like a chorus line. Yeah. 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 And, and you and that's what the whole that's what symphonic works are. You know, composers specifically choose how many cellists they want because of the sound quality they would expect from a cello section or whatever. Um, so you learn how to follow your instructions very, very carefully as a developing orchestral player. But you have a leader, the principal cello, and I like to do that sometimes if I can. The leader. Yeah, the leader. Shine a little bit. I like the leadership role because you have to, um, basically your role is to just stay connected to the conductor and make sure the guys in the back of your section can um, understand what they need to do to keep in line with the section. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to describe this it's kind of paradigm. Like, like being a mother, maybe <laughs> of oh. a bunch of kids. It feels like that sometimes. No offense. I love you, babies. But sometimes you really do. You feel like, no, 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 no. And you have to throw it around. I mean, you don't, you don't always have to turn around and say a thing to your section, but often you, you, you feel compelled because you hear stuff and you have to, you know, just gently remind or di diplomatically is the way I like to do it. 
Right. Yeah. And so you do have a son. I do. We do. do. You guys have a son. <laughs> and so keeping in mind the little you in your corner, the I am me, how are you able to take your experience and uh, pass that on to Jude? Sure. I mean, you try. Const- you can't. I don't know about other people. You can't. I can't stop myself from trying. You know, probably in a way that becomes overbearing. Um, and then he's not going to espouse all that anyway. Um, and that's okay. I mean, you do your best and it's, uh, Herculean and I don't know if it ever ends. I'm not there yet. Um, but I mean, you know, you're pretty much constantly trying to mold them. And um, maybe that's not even And good. also, you're constantly trying to not mold them. Because, like, sometimes I'm like, ooh, that's really not the kind of behavior I want him. You know, you're, you're trying, you know what I mean? Like, like you, you do- want to be better. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you want to lead, you have to lead, you lead by example. That's how it is. And when you realize your example's bad, you're like, oh, geez, I really don't. He, he's pretty headstrong, though. I mean, I played him something the other day I just thought was amazing. I'm like, listen, this is amazing. And then, like, two days later, he's like, I didn't like that song that you said was amazing. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, so, okay. So good. He, he knows his I am me. Oh, oh yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not the problem. <laughs> he knows Definitely. very, very well. He's, yeah, he's good with I am me. All right. I guess to wrap things up, I have one question for both of you. If your inner voice had a billboard, what would it say to the world? I'd say a Jackson Pollock. You just have a Jackson Pollock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, I'll try to think of a better answer, but no, I think it's a pretty good answer, Andy. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean, it says things that are contradictory, you know, it says like secular humanists unite, but then it also says like respect everybody's beliefs, you know, <laughs> <laughs> That's so it, fair. it's kind of a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> what about you, Robin? Oh my God. Hmm. Actually, mine would say be kind. Well, yeah, mine was going to be sort of hippie too. Like hippie, hippie, kumbaya. I think it would just say don't forget to love each other. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. I wish I could say something more profound than that. But That's I think the we, most profound. we just forget and we get all caught up in our, our egos. Ugh. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like this whole interview, when it ends with this question, is like, what are you making the art for? Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of the same question. If it's about us being artists and that kind of thing, like, and that it, like at the end of the day, like art is this thing that takes away pain or transforms right. it or brings joy yes. or basically yeah, tries to get us to that. not be shit pieces of shit. Pieces you of know? shit. Yeah. Don't be a piece of shit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> i think don't forget to love i like that i'm gonna go with that i'll go with be kind thank you thank you and if people would like to check out your work where can they find you i have andyhasenflug.com you want me to spell that you can I'll also put it in the show okay a n d y h a s is in sam e n p is in paul f is in frank l u g dot com <laughs> perfect and robin i chopped off a lot of our name and i'm sorry I have, right. mine's robinhausen.com that's fine so r-o-b-i-n-h-a-s-e-n.com 
That's my mother's stage name. I know. I'm sorry. Hi, Andy's mom. <laughs> Thank you, Whitney. Yeah. This was so fun. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. And until then, stay tuned in to you.